receive from you, and, and we do from your word, your very powerful word, your, your living and active word that goes down beyond the surface of our lives down into our soul and spirit and helps us to recognize things about us that we maybe don't want to recognize. It helps us to see things about you that we need to recognize. And so we pray that as we spend time in your word this morning that you would bless it to our lives, that you would implant truth into our souls so that we might become more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who deserves all the praise and glory. Do pray for those that are suffering so much in our body. I think of my headache, it's a minor thing compared to those that are struggling with cancer or many, many serious things that are going on in the lives of people in our body. We lift them up, pray for your grace to be sufficient, your mercy to be abundant. Pray for healing where your will is to bring that. We pray for uh, your peace if that is not the case. So we lift our brothers and sisters up now so you might uh, care for them in a way that we can't. But we also pray that you would use us to care for people, to show your love to people as we, uh, as we minister to them in their, in their difficulty. So help us, Lord, to be all that you want us to be. We pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I think this might be for the last time that we'll be in this paragraph, but it's Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read it one more time, Acts 2, 42 through 47, where Luke is presenting kind of a summary statement of what life was like in the early church. And we're doing this, the title of this sermon series has been The Community Church. We're, We're doing this because we recognize that when we go to the book of Acts, where the church was given birth and where it developed, that we see certain things about that spiritual community that should not be unique to that spiritual community. That it should be, you know, the same for every spiritual community, whether you're living in a third world nation or you're here in prosperous United States of America, whether you, whether you gather in a home or in a field or in a building like this. These are marks that are outside of that. A lot of people think, I want to be part of a New Testament church, and surely they don't mean by that. I want to dress like they dressed and... I want to go to the temple like the early church did. You know, well, you couldn't do that since the temple's not there in Jerusalem. And uh, they they don't mean I want to be in the same kind of building because they didn't really gather in buildings. Uh, Originally, it was in the open square of the temple proper, and then it moved from house to house. And it wasn't until much later that they started meeting in building that, that was designated for church, you know, gatherings. And so we don't really mean that. What we mean is, as we read the book of Acts, we see a community of people that were together in their desire to serve and glorify God. They understood that man's greatest purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him. And uh, as it was put in the Westminster Catechism, that's a great summary of what we see in the book of Acts in the early spiritual community. And, uh, and so we're kind of just getting a refresher on that because of the very, very tough year that we had with COVID and 
a lot of that kind of broke down, I think, in our thinking and in our spirits. And so a refresher course and maybe new information for some of us. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. This is after Peter had preached the message on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people had trusted in the Lord that day and were baptized. That's verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls to that 120 who had started out that day, gathered in an upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. That's fast growth. Verse 42. This is what life was like after that. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. That last verse will let you know that it's not the day of Pentecost. That is a summary of what happened after the day of Pentecost. There had already been 3,000 souls added that day. And day by day after that, the Lord just kept adding to their numbers those that were being saved through hearing and believing the gospel. And so as we look at this paragraph, we've seen that there are several characteristics or marks of that spiritual community. Uh, We started out with the fact that they were a unified community. We read it right there in the text. They had uh, one mind towards thing, that that word I shared with you, the Greek word homomuthaden. It means of one mind, of one purpose, of one goal, of one passion. We see in the book of Acts, uh, the only place that this word is actually found in the New Testament. Uh, Twelve times in the New Testament, eleven times in the book of Acts. And it's used of the enemies of the gospel. They were united in purpose, united in focus, united in passion against God and against his people. And we see the church. They were united in purpose and focus, and goals, and passion as well. They were of one mind, one heart, one purpose, one passion. They were a unified community. Secondly, we saw that they were a biblical community. Right there in verse 42, it starts out with that. They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching was the Lord Jesus' teaching. The Lord Jesus' teaching was the Old Testament fulfilled in him. So they were getting a constant dose of scripture. You know, I was thinking of how often we talk about the importance of reading the Bible around here. We we encourage you to do it every year, to read through the Bible in a year. And I know that some of you do that, and some of you have never done that. Did you know that the, 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 the Jewish people read the entire Old Testament in a year's time every year? In their meetings, they read through the entire Old Testament. Some of you have never read the entire Old Testament. 
Shame on you. It's God's word. It's where the teaching of the Lord Jesus came out of. He's constantly quoting the Old Testament and saying, I fulfilled that, I fulfilled that, I fulfilled that. It was the apostles' teaching. And it's what the church was built upon. Originally, they only had, in the, in the church, they only had the Old Testament. You know, they didn't get the New Testament until it was written over the years. The last of which was probably added around 90 A.D., Book of Revelation and the Gospel of John and First and Second and Third John. The earliest might have been around sixty. Some suggest a little earlier than that, but thirty years or or so after Jesus ascended back up into heaven. What did they study together? Well, they studied the Old Testament together, and then they said, "And Jesus is the fulfillment of it." This is what Jesus said. They were a biblical community. Many churches are, have ceased being a biblical community. They've kind of abandoned the Bible. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. It's insanity that we would call ourselves a church devoted to Christ and we would abandon the Scriptures. God forbid that that would continue. We need to be a biblical community, which means that we as individuals need to be biblical people. Reading and studying the scriptures together. I could go on for that on that for quite a while, but I'll go on. We we saw that they were sharing community. They continued in fellowship, and that is the idea of fellowship. That Greek word koinonia to have things in common, to be partners in something, to have a, a part in something. They recognized that they had a part in what Jesus had started. It's called the church <laughs> they shared life together they shared their griefs together their joys together they shared possessions we just read it they were selling possessions and and property and 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 sharing with whoever had need they cared for one another enough to share their lives with one another that should mark the community today as well They were a worshiping community. We see that in the fact that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That's just one way that we see it. As you read through that passage, it says they devoted themselves to that. And that's a reference to the communion, the Eucharist, the the breaking of bread and and, and the cup. was the common phrase for it in the New Testament. Sure, they shared meals together as well. We read that in that paragraph as well. But they did that, did the breaking of bread in the context of that meal as well. They knew the importance of being reminded at the beginning. It was even on a daily basis as they shared meals together. They would just break bread and remember the Lord and his great love for them. And as, as time went along, it became the, the practice of the church to gather together on the Lord's Day. And they did that on Sundays because that was the day the Lord resurrected. And, and uh, when they gathered together, they broke bread. They taught, they sung, other elements of worship. You know, it's not just the breaking of bread that is worship, but it's a unique type of worship because it's worshiping through symbol. Symbols that tell us visibly how much Christ loved us, that he would lay his life down for his sheep. And it also reminds us that he took it up because... He said, do this 
until I return. <laughs> and by the way, he is. He's returning. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? So they were a worshiping community. Not just in the breaking of bread, but they did that. They, they worshiped as they sung songs together. Uh, they worshiped as they listened to the apostles' teaching. They worshiped as they fellowshiped with one another. You know, life for them as it should be for us. Life for them was worship. What is worship? I shared that with you. It's basically seeing all that God is and has done and seeing ourselves in light of that, how puny we are and how bad we've been, and yet God loved us and we say, we adore you. We just sang it. We adore you. Adore you for what? For who you are and what you've done for us in bringing us into your family through the sacrifice of your son. Life was about worship, and that should be true for us today, whether we're going to work, we're going to recreate, we gather together for a barbecue and play some games, we sit around with our family at night and talk, or we gather together here. Life should be worship. Showing the value, the worth that we place on the person of God and particularly on the person of Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They were a praying community. We talked about that. was our whole focus last week, and we didn't even finish that. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. The church was filled with men and women and boys and girls who prayed. They prayed individually and they prayed together. And the book of Acts records that. It shows the early history of the church and how much of a characteristic it was for them to pray together. And they prayed in times of persecution, as we looked at, in times of conflict among believers. And yes, even in the early church, there was conflict among believers. And that will exist until we go be with Jesus in heaven where there will be no conflict between believers. Amen. It will. But they prayed in times of conflict among believers. They prayed in a time of crisis. You know, in the, in the passage we just looked at in Acts 12, Peter, James, had, the, the apostle, had been killed by Herod. And Peter had been thrown into prison and was about to be killed because he saw that James being killed had kind of made the Jewish leadership very happy. And the Lord rescued him. An angel came and delivered him from prison. And he went to where the believers were gathered. They were there praying for him. We saw the kind of the comedy of when he arrived and knocked on the door and the servant girl came, Rhoda came, and, and uh, saw that it was Peter. She ran inside, didn't even let him in. She was so excited, she ran in and said, hey, Peter's outside. And they said, no, 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 Peter's in prison. He can't be outside. That must be his ghost. <laughs> You've got to love that. You've got to love that God puts that kind of thing in the Scripture for us. Because it, it, it reminds us that we're kind of that way at times when it comes to prayer. We're praying, we're praying earnestly. We say that we believe that God can do anything. And then God does something and we say, no, no, that couldn't have happened. It couldn't have been God. It's like, come on. Anyway, they prayed in times of crisis. They prayed in times of, uh, of expanding ministry in the first missionary journey taking place in Acts 13. 
there was a gathering together in, uh, of uh, the church, and particularly it mentions those that were in leadership and, and preaching and teaching there in Acts 13, 1 through 3. And, and the Holy Spirit made it clear to them that they were to set aside Paul and Barnabas uh, for, for work of ministry, to take the gospel out to the Gentiles in obedience to Christ's command. And, and they, they prayed some more and they fasted and laid hands on them and they sent them away. But they weren't going to do that without praying. And they prayed in a time of solidifying church ministry and recognizing and ordaining, if you will, church leaders. Acts chapter 14, as Paul came back at the end of his first missionary journey, where he went to every place where he had started a church through preaching the gospel, where it had never been preached before. And about a year later, year and a half later, when he's on his return back to the home church that had sent him out to give a report of all that God was doing, he visited all those places, those brand new churches, and he, he said, we, we need leadership. The church needs leadership. And so they recognized men, a plurality of men to serve as elders, as shepherds, as pastors within those churches. They prayed about it, though. We saw that. And they prayed in a time of departure, hard time when Paul was at the end of his third missionary journey and he knew he needed to go back to Jerusalem and, and uh, he kept being told by the other believers, don't go, don't go, we know what awaits you there. In fact, Agabus, one of the prophets in the New, New Testament church, wrapped a, a, a girded his loins, this is what's going to happen if you go back to Jerusalem and you're going to put him in prison and, and death may await you and... He said, I've got to go. That's where God wants me to go. And, and so as they're on the beach, kneeling down in the sand, they are praying because it was a sad departure and it grieved them. They thought they'll never see him again. They prayed about it. They just didn't wave goodbye, see you later, or maybe never see you again. They prayed and their hearts were united through that prayer trusting that God was leading him where he wanted him to go and would experience all that God had planned for him to experience. That's where we left off. Let me add a few more things about the fact that they were a praying community. You know, as as I think about it, the early church uh, had very little in the way of trained organizers, but they were filled with agonizers. In prayer. People that agonized in prayer about what God was doing and how he would do it. They had few who were, you know, entrepreneurs, enterprising people, but they had many people who were intercessors, praying for other people, praying for the work of God, the gospel going out. You know, they, I think, they knew better than we that worldly Christians stopped praying. And praying Christians stop being worldly. Right? Worldly Christians do. They stop praying. And praying Christians, how could they not but stop being as worldly? They knew that Christ was the vine, and they were the branches, and apart from him they could do nothing, and they, they knew that the Holy Spirit was given to them so that they might fulfill the mission God had given to them. They knew the source of power for, 
for carrying out that mission wasn't in themselves. It was in God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. And so, and so they prayed. Not as many people pray today with their minds on hold and their voices on automatic. You know what I mean by that, right? Ritual prayers. You know, whether it's praying for your meal or praying before you go to bed at night or whatever it can be, just like on automatic. Our voices are making noise, but our hearts are not really in it. Our mind is on hold, or actually sometimes our mind or minds are focused on other things. No, they prayed with an absolute dependence on God uh, for perseverance and suffering, for boldness in proclaiming the word, for the sick, for the needy, for the lost, and for the saved. I mean, they prayed without ceasing. They prayed with words of exaltation, with words of confession, with words of supplication, and with words of surrender. They prayed, they prayed, and they prayed. They were a praying community. It was Charles Spurgeon, who's been called the Prince of Preachers by other preachers, uh, who lived in uh, between 1834 and 1892 uh, in England. He was a, just a famous preacher. He said this, Brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till praying occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Very good. You know, many such quotes uh, could be given to address the important subject of prayer, and there have been many books that I've read on the subject that are good. But the truth is, there are far fewer good quotes into, from today's readers or writers than there were in centuries past. I think they were more connected to the importance of prayer. According to some relatively recent research by the Barna Group, most people pray. Let me read you the quote from the, their survey. They say, in fact, most people pray often, or at least they say they do. In the United States, 9 out of 10 people say they pray to God. 4 out of 5 adults who pray say that prayer is a regular part of their lives. And of those adults who ever pray to God, almost 6 out of 10, 58%, claim they pray every day. And most of those say they pray more than once a day. Even two-thirds of those who never go to church say that they pray. Um, Another book by uh, Whitney on Christian disciplines. He writes this, Yet with all this individual prayer, there seems to be much less group prayer. In the Western half of the world, the, particularly in, the, in America, the independent spirit prevails over the interdependent spirit. The spirit of the discoverer, the frontiersman, the pioneer heading west with all his worldly goods in a covered wagon, those lone farming family, uh, families on the prairie with no neighbors four miles. The cowboy on the open range. The space explorer. The entrepreneur. The spirit is a major influence on our American view of the Christian life. I would say that's even more the case in 
our beloved state of Alaska. A lot of people move here because they want to be independent. They want to be away from. They want to be on their own. They want to pull up their bootstraps and make it on their own. They want to do what was put in the song, I did it my way. That's what they want to say. That's how they want to live. But, you know, is that root of independence and its many effects what God calls the believers in Jesus Christ to demonstrate? No. The answer's got to be in the negative. Rather, a spirit of interdependence, right? Interdependence is what each believer in every church is to model. And, and there's no more much needed evidence of this in, than in the spiritual discipline of prayer. Of prayer. And not just private prayer, I'm not talking about just that, but prayer by the community of God's people who join together and step out onto the battlefield to wage war with the evil one, to stand fast as they take up the shield of faith and the word of God and the, and the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. You know, in Ephesians 6, you read through the armor that God has given us, all that, the, you know, girding our loins with truth and shodding our feet with the gospel of peace and, you know, it, it, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts that Satan shoots our way. And, and, and then he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, the one offensive weapon in that armor, you know, to, to fight the battle. And then right after that, he brings it to prayer. Praying, 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 praying. You've got to have that. That's part of it. Don't go to war without waging time in prayer before you engage the enemy. They were a praying community. Oh God, may we be a praying community. Now I know, I know that we are a, a church... As small as we are, we are a church that is filled with people who pray. I know that. I see the prayer requests that come in and then go out, you know. Uh, and, and I know as those emails go out that people are praying for those things. I'd say it's like an immediate thing. They get an email, they just stop right then and they pray. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing that we do that as we pray for one another. But there's praying together as well. Does that mean that, you know, because we are together, God will hear the prayers more than if we're just doing it on our own? No. No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, you know, Jesus talked about going to your closet and pray, right? Don't make prayer a big deal in the eyes of other people. Don't, I'm going to go pray now. You know, don't draw attention to yourself. But there's something that happens when we pray together that doesn't happen when we pray alone. And that is, we become a more unified community. Our hearts are more bound together. Our spirits are drawn together to the Lord. What a beautiful picture that, you know, I'm glad that the throne room is big enough, God's throne room is big enough, that when, you know, we're encouraged to pray and enter into the throne room to receive grace and mercy, that there's a whole bunch of us that can enter in together. And pray. There's plenty of room for all of us together. And, and it's not that that impresses God. It's what God is doing for us by giving us these commands 
as he tells us to pray. And these instructions about prayer in the New Testament and the examples that we see in the book of Acts is, you know, the church doing it together. The church doing it together because we need it. And it was one of those things that will unite our hearts, our spirits. When Carol and I started doing our monthly prayer meeting, which really came more out of her heart than mine, to be honest with you. And I'm so glad that we started doing that. And it's such a wonderful time as we gather together with five or six other people that are usually there. And it's usually the same five or six other people. And everyone in our, in our group that gathers together would say, you know, something happened, has happened through that time of prayer that we spend together. We feel closer to one another. We feel closer to the Lord together. We do, every one of us. I feel like I know those people better than I knew them before we started praying together. And it's not like we're spending a lot of time ahead of our time of prayer or after our time of prayer, you know, just talking about what's going on in life. We do a little of that, but it's mostly we pray for an hour. We pray for an hour for people in the body. We pray for an hour for our country. We pray, probably you're on our prayer list. We pray, we pray, and we pray. And we end up feeling closer together, feel more united with one another. Would you say that's true? Yeah, everyone that's been in our group. We even have Ralph and Diane who fellowship at another church now because that's where their family is, you know. They typically join us in prayer as well. And we just rejoice that that keeps us united with them. We don't get to see them outside of that generally, but I feel as close to them as I ever have because we pray together. So I want to encourage you, and when we started this, our hopes was that that would multiply, that there would be many homes in our church body who would choose to do that, just five or six, seven you know, it doesn't have to be 20 people. In fact, if you have 20 people, it's hard for everyone to get a chance to pray. But if we could just multiply that, it would be so fantastic. And what it would do for us to unify us and keep us on target, on mission, we'd be much more all in as God's people, I think. They were a praying community. Let's be a praying community. You say, well, how would I do that? Okay, you'd, you'd go to some other people and say, you know, I'm thinking we ought to start a monthly prayer meeting. We'd like to do it at our house. Would you come and join us? That's how we did it. You can do it too. Yes, you can. You can. Number six, they were an awesome community. <laughs> they were an awesome community. Luke's comments in Acts 2, 42 through 47 concerns the, you know, the effect of the Lord's work among the first Christians. It's striking, isn't it? It's striking when you read that paragraph and other pieces in the book of Acts that demonstrate the same thing. And, and I wonder how many churches could have those things you know, mentioned in this paragraph be said of them. I do. But the early church, as we see it in in this passage, you know, was an awesome community. You say, where do you get that? Well, verse 43, verse 43, Luke comments, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everyone kept 
feeling a sense of awe. There, there, and, and by the way, there's no reason to take that as some do, that you know, the people who are in awe were the unbelievers in the broader community. I think they were in awe too, and that is clear as you read this passage and other places. They were drawn, in fact, to the small Christian community because of what they were seeing. They were in awe. But it's the believers, I think, that is primarily being talked about here. They were in awe as they continued to see what God was doing. And, and what was God doing? Well, it wasn't, you know, the fact that they were building big, magnificent buildings. You know, like the cathedrals of the, you know, the Middle Ages and that kind of thing. No, it wasn't buildings. And it wasn't like, you know, the, the mega churches of today, one church, many sites. It wasn't the fact that that was happening. No. Though there was one church at the beginning here, it was just one place. It was in Jerusalem. God had to kind of kick them through suffering to get out the door and take the gospel out. It wasn't things like that. And it wasn't programs engineered by human ability to meet every person's felt needs, you know, that brought a sense of awe upon the community. Rather, it was the mighty work of God in word and in deed that was awing the people. They were in awe. Now, more literally, the text actually reads, now fear was coming upon every soul. Now fear was coming upon every soul. And the word awe or fear, it's the same Greek word. It's the Greek word phobos. What do we get from that? We get words like phobia. What's that? Well, phobia is being afraid of something, isn't it? Uh, how many of you are afraid of heights? That's right. Yeah. I, I'm weird myself. I have a, a fear of walking up on a flat roof to the edge of the roof. It doesn't matter if it's 10 feet high or 20 feet high or 50 foot high. I can't get to the edge on a flat roof. I've got to get down on my hands and knees because something weird goes on inside of me. I feel like I'm going to stumble and go right over. But I can walk a girder across a a warehouse and not have that kind of thing. It's weird phobias, aren't they? How many of you are claustrophobic? A few of you. I am. In fact, I get claustrophobic. I have a fear of being in crowds. Being one of the worst feelings that I had was when I went to a was a Promise Keepers convention in Seattle. There were fifty thousand men gathered together in the kingdom there in Seattle many years ago. And we were like... walking in, you know, in lines, and you couldn't move without bumping into people. And it was like, I was almost in panic mode. I have a fear of tight spaces, especially with people. That's a weird fear. I don't really get why I have it, but I do. So... That word, you know, phobos can be fear, but it can also be awe. So what was it? Was it awe or was it fear that was coming upon everyone? And the answer to that is both. It was both. They had awe and they had fear. And, and really that is contained in the phrase that's so common in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord, right? Right? If you are reading your Old Testament, you probably got to the book of Proverbs where wise living is explained. 
and Foolish Living is made known. And throughout that book, it is the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, it's understanding. The fear of the Lord give lots of descriptions, common, common phrase in the scripture. But one problem that we face when reading the term awe, like we read in most of the English translations, awe was coming upon them all. Even when, if we understand that that's reverential awe, as is so commonly uh, referred to today, is that the true meaning of the word awe is kind of misunderstood. It's kind of been lost on our culture today. Um, it's not uncommon, for example, for to hear someone speak about the awesome game that they went to. Hockey game, basketball game, baseball game, NFL game, rugby game, soccer game, lots and lots of games, and it's not uncommon. Oh, man, it was an awesome game. It's also not uncommon to hear people talk about food that way. Oh, man, that steak was awesome. It was perfect. It was about that thick. It was juicy, you know, you know, cooked to perfection. And, oh, man, that key lime pie, whew, it was awesome. Or, you know, they'll talk about a sale where they went and bought some clothes. Oh, it was Awesome sale. Awesome sale. I saved so much money, which does not compute with me, actually. You don't save money by spending it, but that's a different, you know, that'll be a thing on budgeting and all of that. It was an awesome sale. Or you might say to your spouse or your girlfriend, you're so awesome. You look awesome tonight. Just last week, I had already thought through this passage, I've written this, uh, well, starting week one, I had all this written out because <laughs> I thought I was going to do it in one or two weeks, but, but, that would be awesome. You're misusing that word. <laughs> You're not understanding that word. So last week I was on the other side and Jenna came up and we were talking about food and that kind of stuff. Uh, she's the one responsible, heads up the food services. And I said, Jenna, you're just awesome. And then I stopped and I said, no, I take that back. You're not awesome. You're wonderful. You're great. But that word is highly overused and refers to you know, things that it shouldn't be used in connection with. I mean, no doubt the, the, the game was exciting to watch and the key lime pie could be very tasty and, you know, you might save an exceptional, uh, exceptional amount of money on a, a sale when you're looking to buy something that goes on sale and, and your friend or your spouse or, or whatever, uh, you know, may look beautiful and wonderful and all of that, but really, are they awesome? think it's misused. Even the popular chorus of the past, you know, our God is an awesome God. It was so, so often it was sung like it was at a pep rally. Then people who were, con you know, actually contemplating who God is, how great he is, how awesome he really is. Let me give you a dictionary definition of the word awe. I think it's really good, something like this. 
a mixed emotion of reverence, respect, dread, and wonder inspired by authority, genius, great beauty, sublimity, or might. Let me read that again. So, awe is a mixed emotion of reverence, respect, dread, and wonder inspired by authority, genius, great beauty, sublimity, or might. Now, you know, I think it might be appropriate to use the word awesome when describing the grand beauty that we see here in Alaska. You know, you look at, you know, you go for a drive and you look at the mountains and it's like, that's awesome. Truly, it is great beauty, isn't it? And as a child of God, you know who made it and it's like that makes it all the more beautiful in your thinking. The genius of God, the power of God demonstrated in what he's created. I mean, that, that's awesome. Or maybe I remember one time when we were in Hawaii and we were uh, hiking a trail and the waves were incredibly high that day and we were about 150 feet up above the, the shoreline on this trail and it was just thunderous as the waves pounded into the shore. I mean, it was awesome. It was. You felt little. You felt puny. You felt like, oh, what a display of, you know, of God's glory, his power. I think that's appropriate to use it in those kinds of circumstances. But that really doesn't fit with tasty food and saving a little bit of money and, you know, that kind of thing. But the attitude that was prevailing in the church in the New Testament and, and should prevail in the church today was both a fear or a holy terror. Part of the definition was dread, right? A holy terror uh, at the presence of God as well as a deep reverence for who he is, his attributes and how awesome he really is. I mean, that prevailed in the early church. You know, the same word is used in Acts chapter 5, twice, verse 5 and verse 11. Acts 5, 1 through 11, is where people are giving money, as we read in Acts 2. They're giving money and giving it to the church to meet other people's needs. And a, a couple who owned some property sold their property, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their property and they say, hey, let's say that we sold it. Well, they sold it for this amount, but let's keep a little back for ourselves and well, we'll just say we sold it for this and, you know, we'll get a nice pat on the back, no doubt. It's like, man, you people are giving. Well, th- through the Holy Spirit, Peter recognized that they weren't being truthful. They both lied about it, lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them dead. First Ananias, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Drop dead, carry him out. Wife walks in. Hey, did you sell your property for this? Yes, we did. Drop dead. Carry her out. And it says, and fear came upon the whole, the whole group. Who? The believers. They had a holy dread, a holy terror over what God was demonstrating about our relationship to him and how we are to treat him. In another summary statement, we read in Acts chapter 9. Go over there, if you would, in your Bible. Acts chapter 9. Starting in verse 26. 
It says, when he came to Jerusalem, this is Paul. So he had become a believer. He's already been ministering up in Damascus area with Barnabas. And he comes to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. Yes, same word. But but, uh, not believing that he was the disciple. I mean, he had been the great persecutor, right? He had been throwing people into into jail, being responsible for even the death of some believers. So they were afraid of him. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and and sent him away to Tarsus, Tarsus where Paul had been raised and had gone to school. And you may not know this, probably don't, that Paul remained in Tarsus waiting to hear word from the apostles that it was time to actually get engaged, you know, in full-time ministry. He was nine years in Tarsus, waiting to get the word. I'm sure he was not busy doing other things. He was busy sharing the Lord there as well. But we read on verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. That's the church. Going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it continued to increase. So God tells us that we should fear him. And and living with the fear of the Lord is a mark of a spiritually healthy church, is what we see, right? Spiritually healthy church. In the book of Romans, Paul, in in chapters uh, 1 through 3, is describing why we need uh, God's righteousness. Because we're sinners, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need his righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, through God's gift, you know, of his son. But in Romans 3, he kind of describes the depravity of the society of people that he's talking about. And he brings his descriptive comments to a climax with this statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the mark of an ungodly, lost society. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Earlier in Romans 3, Paul quoted Psalm 14, where it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So a fool doesn't recognize that there's a God that you're going to give an account to, and the society that is foolish is one that says, there's no God that I give account to. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that statement serves as both a cause and a conclusion for a people who are neither in God, uh, of God, who he really is, nor afraid of the judgments that he will bring upon them for their sin. Hmm. They act as if there's no God. No one to whom they'll give an account. No one who has the power and authority to bring their souls down to hell. What could be more descriptive of a lost society? What could be more descriptive of our society? Right? 
there is no fear of God before the eyes of our society. Our culture's denial of any objective and moral standards evidence no more so than in the sexual revolution that is going on in our culture. The lack of that is evidence that people today thumb their noses at God being, you know, in a sense being similar to Pharaoh who said to Moses in Exodus 5.2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? But such an outright denial of the fear of, of God is not in the church, is it? Well, some would say, well, certainly not. Certainly the church has the fear of the Lord in it, right? I think we'd be sadly mistaken if we were not to see that there is little fear of God in the church, the broad church uh, today. And it is at least in part for that reason the lack of fear among the people of God in the church, that there is a lack of fear in the society in which we live. Our lack of fear rubs off on the lost society. Right? We're to be a light, but really, are we being darkness? You know, that's not to say, that's not to say that Christians are to live in fear of eternal judgment. Because we've been delivered from condemnation. Thank you for that. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. You know, and we've been delivered once for all by his sacrifice. And God's perfect love for us, doesn't it drive out the fear of that eternal wrath? It does. In fact, that's what John said in 1 John chapter 4. Perfect love has cast out all fear. What, that doesn't mean it casts out my fear of being in a crowd. It's not talking about your fear of heights. It's talking about the fear of God's judgment there. God's love has cast that out from us. But, you know, knowing that, trusting in that, believing that, doesn't mean that Christians have been you know, removed from any accountability for the way that they live. Should I say that again? Just the fact that we will never face God's eternal wrath doesn't mean that we don't have to be careful about how we live before God. We do. We do. It is the fear of God that is part of what moves believers from sin to holiness. I love the way that Peter put it in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 17. He said this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, before you became a believer. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You know what he's saying? He's talking to believers, right? If you say, God is my father, I'm so glad he is, <laughs> that the devil is no longer my father like I was before I trusted in Christ. God is my father. God is saying to you, I'm holy. 
So be holy like me. Like father, like child. And part of what will move you to that, to living holy like your heavenly father, is the fear of God. That's what he's saying. The fear of God will bring that about. So, it's important for us to have a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord, the, that God is awesome. I remind you of the definition. A mixed emotion of reverence, respect, dread, and wonder, inspired by authority, genius, great beauty, sublimity, or might. So, listen, God does not want us to be afraid of him. But he does command us to live in the fear of the Lord. That's, that's different. Listen to Exodus 20 and verse 20. We read this. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So they've been brought out of their slavery in Egypt. They've been set free. They come to the mount where they receive the law. God shows up. There's a whole you know, cloud thing come down on the mountain, thunder and lightning, and you know, it's a, kind of a, a scary uh, situation. And Moses says, hey, don't be afraid. And I think what he's saying is, God's not going to do you in like he did the, uh, the people of Egypt. He rescued from the, you from that. You don't need to be afraid of him, but you better live in the fear of him. Live in the fear of him. So while they were not to be afraid, they were to fear God, and that fear was to keep them from sin. Again, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Jerry Bridges wrote this. He says, simply being afraid of God will lead to distrust and disobedience of him. But fearing God, in the biblical sense, will keep us from sinning. Living in the fear of the Lord. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord, seeing God as awesome, in fact, should be an animating and invigorating principle of godly living. It's the wellspring, really, of all godly desires and aspirations. So, question, do you want to be a godly person? Do we want to be a godly church? Then, let's live in the fear of the Lord. And then we, too, will be an awesome community. Let's stop there. Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for what we see that you did 2,000 years ago as you worked among people who had turned from uh, ritual, turned from uh, even the, the sacrifices and traditions that were in the law, things that you had given to the children of Israel for their benefit, but things that you had given, given them to point out to them how they needed a Savior. And then you, you let them know that the Savior was seen in all those things. Some of them just couldn't give that up. They couldn't give it up. And so they constantly lived in fear. 
They were afraid of your condemnation. But thank you that Jesus removed that. We need not fear coming into your presence. We need not think that when we come before you on our day of death or when you call us up, that we will hear from you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. No, no. We will hear welcome. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you. And that's because of what Jesus did for us. (laughs) You are awesome, God. What you have done for us in your Son. We give him all praise and glory and honor. But we want to do that with more than our, our words as we gather together here and we hear a sermon like this and we say, Amen. We agree. We want to live this way. We want to live in the fear of the Lord. And in doing so, be an awesome community that you can reach the lost community with. So help us to be that, to the glory of your name. Amen.